Welcome back to the uh, Hayek Auditorium uh, at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C., uh, both those uh, present here and watching at home. Uh, I am again Julian Sanchez, Senior Fellow. Um, very uh, pleased to welcome you to the second panel of the 2019 Cato Institute Surveillance Conference. Uh, this uh, uh, kind of continues the theme of uh, focusing on oversight with respect to two particularly controversial programs, um, surveillance under uh, Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and uh, a provision of Section 215 that provides for uh, a very large-scale collection, automated collection of phone records. Both of these programs have had um, some uh, fairly serious compliance incidents that have come to light over the past year, uh, and so we thought it useful to examine uh, how those arose, what the nature of the problems that have been discovered is, and how the intelligence community is responding to them and whether the response uh, we think is adequate to the problems that have been disclosed. Um, so to moderate the discussion, we have a fantastic panel that will be headed up by uh, Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times national security reporter uh, Charlie Savage, whose book uh, Power Wars is, I think, probably the best portrait of national security policymaking uh, in a presidential administration uh, that I have ever read. Uh, is a journalistic lens. Uh, I will uh, pass you on to the able hands of Charlie Savage to introduce our second panel. Thank you, Julie. Uh, so good morning, everyone, he, both here in the auditorium and watching at home. Uh, so we're going to discuss overseeing programmatic surveillance, FISA 702 and 215. Uh, so I'm going to briefly introdu introduce the concepts behind this panel, and then we'll turn to this very uh, diverse uh, an interesting uh, group of minds to talk about it. I'll introduce each of them in turn as I ask the first uh, question of them. We'll have two rounds of questions from me, one focusing on 215 and one focusing on 702. And don't worry for those of you who aren't is in the weeds, I'll explain that in a moment. And then we'll go to audience questions. Uh, but also, you guys should feel free to break out of the, the mold if you think of something that you want to pivot off of, just signal and we can be spontaneous about it. So what does programmatic surveillance mean? Obviously there's lots of surveillance programs, but when people talk about programmatic surveillance, they aren't necessarily talking about any program that involves surveillance. It's a concept of, uh, that emerged uh, into public view, but into the government's view before that, sort of after the Snowden leaks, I would say, or even after the leaks of the warrantless wiretapping program. And it, it, the, the notion is a regimented, regulated, overseen by a court system of surveillance where the, a, the, the FISA court is setting rules and supervising a chunk of the government, usually the NSA, could be the FBI, in its performance of wiretapping or collection of data without necessarily signing off on whether individual targets meet legal standards, which is the traditional judge, we need to get a wiretap order on this mafia figure, here's why it's set. Yes, that standard is set, you can do it, or no, it's not set, you can't do it. Instead, it's here's a whole program, here's what you can do with it, here's the limits on who can access the data, here's what has to be done, here's the oversight. And it's sort of, it's almost like the court is acting more like a manager uh, rather than an adjudicator. And so the, this emerged, and oh, forgive me for those of you, again, who are already in the weeds, but those who aren't, after the 9-11 attacks, the Bush administration created a secret surveillance and bulk data collection program called Stellar Win. It had different aspects. One aspect allowed the government to intercept Americans' international uh, emails and phone calls without a warrant if they were suspected of uh, talking to a terrorist or if they, uh, uh, and another element involved the bulk collection uh, from internet and phone companies of metadata showing who was contacting whom uh, on a vast scale but not what they were saying. And all this was being done unilaterally without court involvement, without a oversight, and based on very strained theories about why it was lawful. Over time in the Bush administration as parts of this came to light, and uh, telecoms got worried about how they were uh, maybe sustaining legal jeopardy by participating in this. Elements of this were moved under statutory authority and brought under the FISA court, uh, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court oversight. The court issued broad rules uh, and then supervised how those rules were being carried out for both this data and this intercepting. And these, this merged into what we now know of 
as 702, which is, a, a, as, which is warrantless collection of emails and phone calls from American companies like Google and AT&T, as long as the target is a non-citizen abroad, talking with Americans. And what can happen to that data, and especially it's interesting what the government can do when it's looking within this repository for information about Americans that it would collected without a warrant. The other big category that came out of this, which came to light after the Snowden leaks, was known as Patriot Act 215 collection. This was the systematic bulk collection uh, from phone companies of their customers' calling records, showing, including purely domestic phone calls, every contact between people in the United States, a sort of vast social map of who knew whom, which the NSA used, uh, at least in theory, uh, to try to find hidden associates of known terrorists. Um, and then that program, when it came to light eventually, was uh, ceased to be programmatic surveillance as I've described it, because one of the reforms the Obama administration made unilaterally initially was to say, we're gonna now have judges approve each query. So before you can dip into this database, you need to tell, show a judge that there is a reasonable, articulable suspicion that this particular person whose universe of contacts you're looking at uh, it has a tie to terrorism. And then in 2015, Congress abolished that program with the USA Freedom Act and created a new system where the bulk data would reside at the phone companies but could still be systematically accessed with a judge's permission uh, by the NSA. And so we're gonna talk about first, the Legacy 215 program, the bulk metadata access to phone records. And then we're gonna talk about 702, the uh, Legacy Warrantless Surveillance Program, which is still operating. Okay. So that's the, the landscape. Let me, uh, let me start turning to my colleagues here. So to start with, uh, double-sided printer. I'm gonna start at the very end with Ben Hubner. He is our representative of the government's voice here. He's the new Alex Joel, for those of you who have come here in previous cycles. He's, that means he's the Chief Civil Liberties and Privacy Officer at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, overseeing the 17 intelligence agencies uh, across the federal government. He used to have a similar role, one, sort of one step lower at the CIA, and then when Alex uh, entered the private sector after many years in June, was it Ben? Yeah. You moved up to succeed him before, and what's that like? How's it different being at ODNI instead of CIA in this role? It, I mean, it's good. I, I'm not, I wouldn't say, for my colleagues at CIA, I wouldn't say above, I would say I moved over. Um, it, it's, a different, <laughs> it, it's a different role insofar as um, at CIA, uh, CIA obviously is a much more operational place, right? And so as a privacy and civil liberties officer, more of the duties there um, required looking at particular individual actions or programs and whether we were going to, or not going to do them. Um, there is still certainly that role over at ODNI, particularly because we have our, our, our centers, like the National Counterterrorism Center. But consistent with the role of the ODNI, more of the work is about kind of the overall intelligence community approach and integrating that approach and also setting those rules um, for all of the intelligence community on how they're going to handle U.S. person information. Okay. Well, so let me, let me, let's start with the thing that's the most newsy uh, in this world. It has nothing to do with impeachment. Uh, which is the fate of the USA Freedom Act system, the legacy bulk phone accessing, phone data accessing system that came out of the Patriot 215 program, which came out of Stellar Wind. Uh, most of you probably know this, but the, 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 the law that authorizes. The law that authorizes the USA Freedom Act system that allows the NSA to tap into the, the records of all the phone companies uh, is, was set to expire in December. It was briefly extended to <laughs> pardon us. It was briefly extended to March in the most uh, continuing resolution, but it's still about to sunset. The law is going to die unless Congress enacts legislation to extend it, and this system has been shut down. It had problems, and then the, it ceased to operate, and the question then arose, should the government ask Congress to extend the legal authority for a system that it's no longer using, uh, in case it solves those problems and wants to turn it back on again, or should Congress allow the law to lapse 
just because it's not being used anyway. Ben, could you walk us through the arguments? I'm not asking you to take a position, but to articulate them, the internal arguments in the government about, first of all, explain why the system was shut down, and then what are the two points of view that came into issue about whether the executive branch should ask Congress to extend this expiring, currently not used law? Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm unfortunately going to take an already complex topic and make it slightly more complex um, just because it will help people understand why the program, uh, some of the reasons why the program was suspended. Um, so there, there's a fundamental difference um, because of the USA Freedom Act between the prior program and then the program as, as it happened, uh, occurred post-2015 until um, late, earlier this year. In the prior program, the... Um, of called detail records, um, effectively unspecified to a particular target. And then the control on that was when could the, could the NSA tap into those particular correctly uh, and accurately. USA Freedom Act did something different. It did um, have those called detail records instead uh, reside, actually just remain, remain at, at the providers that are subject to the orders. And then it allowed effectively for a certain type, a new type of business record request different than other business record requests. Um, in that business, in, in a more typical business record request, um, the FBI might go to a provider and say, you know, I would like to find out all of the call detail records um, for, for Ben, which would be all of the instances in which my phone number, and it would be for a specific phone number, called another phone number. And the type of record, um, when we're talking about call detail records, is only that. This number called that number at this time for this amount of period, uh, for this period. Um, for the call detail record program, it does not include content, but it also does not include names, it does not include financial information, it does not include GPS information or cell site location information. None of those are applicable here when we're talking about the NSA call detail record program. Um, what NSA is authorized to get um, that's different from that um, normal business record request is often kind of colloquially refer referred to as two hops, right? So instead of just getting all of the um, calls between that target phone number, my phone number, and um, the people that I contacted, that would be the first hop. But the second hop that NSA would be able to get would be all of the calls, the call detail records, between those, that outer layer and the folks that they called, right? So a second hop, if you will. Um, but not more than that. Um, and that's fundamentally different than the program prior to the USA Freedom Act. So in um, early 2018, the NSA... Uh, uh, NSA analysts noted some technical irregularities um, in some of the data that they were receiving from those telecommunication service providers. Um, and I can't go into extensive detail on that. The Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board has, is concluding a review of this program, and we're actually actively doing a declassification review. Um, so more will be coming out, which I think is probably very frustrating for our particular panel. Um, but there will be a lot more coming out on this. Um, but suffice to say, that the, some of the information coming from the providers from that first hop was inaccurate. Um, it, it did not accurately indicate that you know, phone number A was in contact with phone number B. Because of this two-hop nature of this program, that meant, and unfortunately there's nothing on the record itself that would indicate that it was inaccurate, that meant when NSA took that record and went and got the second hop, um, if that you know, phone number B was inaccurate and it got that second hop, well, those were records that NSA was not authorized to receive. It was only authorized to receive the two-hop information, but if there was an error for that first hop, all of those additional records that came in on the second hop um, would, be, um, would be over collection um, and certainly a compliance incident. That's a problem. That's a problem from a privacy perspective in terms of NSA having records that they're not supposed to have. That's a problem from a mission perspective, right? If the data is inaccurate um, and doesn't actually um, um, indicate an actual connection between two individuals um, that is not terribly useful um, uh, from an intelligence perspective. And then there was a third problem, which it was, as I said earlier, it was not immediately apparent from the call detail records itself that the information was inaccurate. So there was no easy way to figure out what were the records that were overproduced and what were not. And so what NSA did and what NSA publicly announced in 2018 
is they, they moved to try to correct some of these issues, but they also deleted all of the underlying data in that program um, from when it began in 2015 um, un until the program, uh, these issues were identified. And the program did continue for some time, um, but there was also a reevaluation um, of the program. And um, looking at, and the compliance incidents factored into this, but they aren't the only factor. Um, NSA took a holistic look, looked at the compliance issues and the data integrity issues um, for how accurate that data was, looked at how much, um, how useful the information was, how, many, how, many, how much reporting was being based upon it, looked at the cost of the program, compared that to other programs the NSA runs, um, and effect effectively uh, made a business decision and said we are going to suspend this program um, and, and not con continue this collection and, and in fact actually um, delete all of the underlying collection again. But um, they decided this is too expensive, too much of a headache, we have much the same capability through other programs that aren't as expensive and work better, let's turn it off. But then the law is going to expire raising the question, do we let the law expire or do we ask for it to remain on the books? And so what are the two points of view on that question? So I, so, so I think the two points of view on that question, so uh, the first point of view was, you know, this is a program that didn't um, provide as much value as, as, as folks might have hoped, did run into some compliance and data integrity issues. Um, it was effectively an experiment, but an experiment that didn't work out as an intended, and so let's let that authority expire. And I think- Not using it didn't work. Move on. We're not using it and move on. I think that is sort of one of the kind of articulated positions on this. The other articulated position um, on this is, look, this is an instance where, um, you know, we never want our intelligence community agencies to use a tool just because they have it. We want them to judicially use the, use the program when it's an appropriate program to use um, and to not when it's not. That judgment was applied in this case. Um, and, the, and the tool was put down, but that does not necessarily mean that it's not a useful tool in the future, right? I, I have plenty of tools in my own toolkit that I bring out every three to five years. They're not my hammer that I use once a week, but they are useful when they are useful. So the, 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 the other argument is this tool may become useful in the future. Don't if, give up. If it becomes useful in the future, to be clear, that doesn't mean that the NSA just immediately gets access to all of this information. It means that NSA would have to go back to the court, seek authorization um, uh, to, to restart that program. That would be a significant um, program change, which means they would have to notify Congress as well that they were restarting the program. And so you probably can't fill this in, but the, for the audience, the thrust has been that the NSA and the intelligence community wanted to go with option A. Don't complicate reauthorization of other authorities. We're not using it. Turn it, let it die. Don't have the fight. There's too much else going on. But at the White House, which this is what Ben can't safely explain, John Bolton, then a national security advisor, took option B. Why give up power, even if we're not currently using it, and made that the administration's position, the ask to Congress. However, both the intelligence committees in the Senate and the House have put forward draft bills that would not renew this authorization. So the writing seems to be on the wall, especially with every other things happening in Congress that are sucking up the oxygen for a lot of debate, that this program's legal authority may die soon. And so with that, I want to, you feel free to jump in and correct me if I've misstated something. I, I'm not going to comment on internal deliberations other than so, to say they are always robust. Always robust. All right, so let me turn now to Carrie Cordero, sitting next to me. She's the Robert Gates Senior Fellow at the Center for New American Security. She's also a former senior national security lawyer at the Justice Department and then ODNI as well, and in the Bush years especially, I think. Both. Both. Okay. Deep state. Trans, trans administration. All right, so... This, raise, this, this looming sunset raises a question, which is we seem to keep having these surveillance sunset debates. We had one about 702 in early 2018, and now we have this one about Legacy 215, the USA Freedom Act coming up. But we also had one about you know, 702 back in 2012 and so forth. And why is it that we have to keep having these cycles? Does it make sense for... Uh, for the country to be stuck in these recurring debates over the same issue, what is the purpose of sunsets? Does, can you talk a little bit about whether these surveillance programs and their legal authority ought to have shelf lives and the pros and cons of that? Sure. 
So, um, so the history of these sunsets, particularly as it relates to Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA surveillance, really is a post-9-11 area of national security law. Prior to September 11, 2001, and then October of 2001, when the USA Patriot Act was passed, which uh, amended a number of surveillance law-related provisions, um, FISA had a pretty good run as being fairly consistent. So it was originally passed in 1978. There wasn't a substantial amendment to the law until 1994 when the physical search provision was added. That was a permanent authorization at the time. It did not have one of these temporary sunsets built in. It was just Congress considered it. The law was passed in 94, and that was it. That surveillance was baked into the law. There were some lighter amendments in the late 90s as it pertained to Pen Register and Business Records Authority. Um, and then it was 2001 with the Patriot Act where we started to see the um, beginning of these provisions of sunset, where the law would be authorized for certain years, but with a sunset date. And what that does, does as a practical matter is it forces the policy community and the legislative consideration to take another look at the provisions that were passed. I tend to think that part of the reason for that was because of the um, quick nature with which the Patriot Act was passed in 2001. So the attacks obviously were on September 11th, and it was about six weeks later that a really substantial legislative package went through Congress. Um, very little legislative history. If you go back and look, um, there's not an extensive record because it happened so quickly because it was in a uh, heightened threat environment. And so the, the compromise that was made at the time was number of provisions had sunsets. And then that has really now carried for the last, and you did a really impressive job, Charlie, of going through about 19 years of surveillance history in five minutes at, at your opening. Um, that history has continued. There's pros and cons to whether or not the sunsets are valued. Are, are valuable. From the government's perspective, um, back when I was in government, there was some, at the operational level, frustration with the sunset provisions. Oftentimes, not because uh, people within the government were necessarily opposed to the, uh, to the sunset and the legislative debate, but because it always runs up in Congress's uh, handling of the sunset, it runs up to the 11th hour. I mean, here we are in December. These particular provisions expire at the end of December. There doesn't seem to be the, March um, now. They were it, it doesn't seem to be, I'm not hearing from the intelligence community publicly in this debate that they are particularly concerned, particularly about the 215 program, about it expiring from a national security threat perspective. But I do remember in years past, in the, in the mid-2000s period, when these sunsets would come up, there was really deep operational worry that the law would expire and that would require at the operational level massive surveillance programs to be have to turn on a dime. And, and that is not a good way to conduct the national security business of the United States. Just to pull out for so, a second, what I'm hearing you say is the notion behind a sunset is this allows for a periodic reconsideration by Congress, a careful deliberative debate about what the rules should be for 21st century surveillance. That all sounds well and good in the abstract. In practice, Congress, as we all know, is a continuing train wreck, and they don't have any debate until the, thing, the, the eve of the thing is going to expire and then things try to get jammed through. It doesn't really work like so much in Congress doesn't work. Well, it's, right, and so that presents operational challenges. Again, I'm not hearing that this year with this particular expiration, but that certainly was um, an issue in, in prior years. On the other hand, the sunsets do provide a forcing function to have a policy debate. And so in this particular case, if there wasn't the sunset, would the program just sort of continue because there wasn't the forcing debate and there wasn't a requirement that um, leaders from the intelligence community go up and justify it as a national security necessity to Congress? So on the other hand, I do, I do see that value in these periodic legislative um, debates because it forces a conversation that might not otherwise occur. All right, thank you. So let's sort of push back a little bit closer to this particular program as it has evolved. I'm going to turn now to Liza Goitin. She's the director of 
the Liberty National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School. She's author of many studies about surveillance and emergency power and other things like that. Uh, also formerly government herself, she was a counsel to Senator Russ Feingold, uh, when, who was of course one of the, the original uh, critics of surveillance before Ron Wyden took up that mantle. And before that, I, I was looking at your bio, you were in Fed programs in the Justice Department, defending government power and government programs. What's it like to uh, pivot from defending to attacking, critiquing? offering constructive criticism. So I should say that at federal programs, uh, the lawyers defend federal agencies in civil lawsuits across a range of areas. It is it's kind of the catch-all branch that handles lawsuits in all different substantive areas. And believe it or not, uh, I am not one of those people who believes that everything the government does is bad. Um, and <laughs> uh, you know, I spent uh, almost eight years at federal programs, and I never worked on a case where I felt like, where I felt any sort of remote ambivalence about the position that we were defending. I was asked on a couple of occasions to handle cases where I did have those problems, and I didn't take those cases. Ah, all right. Well, so focusing on this program, uh, the whole idea of USA Freedom Act in the 2015 uh, moment post-Snowden was the government, it was going to end bulk collection of Americans phone calls, or maybe bulk collection in general, the notion of sucking up vast amounts of records about Americans' activities rather than targeting specific people who have attracted suspicion or have some literal relevance to a particular investigation. Let's suck up the haystack, and we can go hunting for the needles after we've ingested the haystack. USA Freedom was supposed to end that practice. And so five, four years later, what's your verdict? Right. Did it succeed on its own terms? So let me just take a step back and say a little bit more about what Section 215 is. Before the Patriot Act was passed, the government was able to acquire certain categories of business records, narrow categories that it actually didn't include phone records, uh, if it had reason to believe and could persuade the FISA court that the subject of the records was a foreign agent, uh, sorry, a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power. Section 215 of the Patriot Act dramatically expanded this authority, allowing the government to obtain any tangible thing, not just business records, on a low showing of relevance to an authorized foreign intelligence investigation. What we learned in 2013 through the Snowden disclosures was that the government was actually obtaining all of the phone records, Americans' phone records, held by several major phone companies. Uh, and the FISA court had approved this based on the theory that even though the vast majority of them had no relevance to any investigation, uh, there were likely to be a small number of relevant records buried within them. The USA Freedom Act in 2015, which turned on a sunset and there was a year or two of debate leading up to it. So that is the exception to that, that proves the rule of the importance of, of sunsets. Uh, that was Congress's effort to end the NSA's bulk collection program, but more generally to prohibit bulk collection under Section 215 and other authorities. And Congress tried to do this not by going back to the old foreign power agent of a foreign power standard, but by requiring requests for collection to be tied to something called a specific selection term, or an SST. Uh, despite what it sounds like, a specific selection term is not necessarily a unique identifier. And we're talking, when we're talking about Section 215 authority generally, not the special phone records program that Ben was talking about, but the general authority, uh, the definition of SST includes a term that identifies a person, account, address, personal device, or any other specific identifier. Now that may sound narrow uh, until you look at the statutory definitions. A person is defined as an individual, group, entity, association, corporation, or foreign power. And the term address in the USA Freedom Act explicitly includes IP addresses, which can be shared by hundreds or sometimes even thousands of people. Now for the special call detail records program, which is just one part of Section 215, uh, the actual subject of collection has to be uh, somebody reasonably suspected of terrorist activity. But as Ben was saying, the government can then get a second hop, which is the phone records of anyone who calls or is called by that terrorist even once. So at the time, in 2015, many of us had some concerns that because of the open-ended nature of the SST definition and the second hop 
in the call detail records program, uh, the collection might end up being, if not technically bulk collection in the sense of being literally indiscriminate, um, still quite bulky in the sense of pulling in a lot of information about innocent people. Thanks to the transparency provisions of the USA Freedom Act, we actually have some insight into how those concerns have played out. So Congress required the government to report uh, the estimated number of targets of collection, but also the number of unique identifiers used to communicate information collected, a very tortured way of saying uh, people whose communication records were swept in. Um, for the call detail records program, between 2015 and 2018, the government reported fewer than 100 targets of collection. At the same time, it reported that more than a billion records were collected, including information on more than 19 million phone numbers. And if you, if you know how many phones the, uh, the average American has, which I looked up, that is about 14 million Americans. So 100 targets, 14 million Americans affected. For the this is because of the exponential growth of that second hop. Exactly. 100 people each have called another 100 people, and so mm -hmm. one target leads to a vast sphere of people around that target. Exactly. Now, nothing requires the government to make that second hop, but they're clearly doing so uh, pretty much across the board. Well, that's the whole point of the program, though, right, is to find hidden Well, it's associates. also to get ongoing records rather than a one-time uh, a one-time hit, as you might say. So for the Section 215 authority in general, getting any tangible thing, not just called detail records, there is no second hop. And yet, the number of unique identifiers that are being whose information is being collected is still orders of magnitude higher than the number of targets. So in 2018, there were 60 targets of collection under traditional 215, uh, but more than 200,000 unique identifiers whose information was swept in. And so what that tells us is that the government is uh, choosing uh, SSTs and or targets that encompass hundreds of or thousands of people and or choosing to get, obtain records that include information about hundreds or thousands of people. Um, and in doing so, the government is inevitably sweeping in large amounts of information that has no relevance to any authorized investigation, and that's the definition of bulky collection. So uh, in my view, we have the evidence to see that the USA Freedom Act uh, is not working, certainly as I would have hoped it would work and as Congress purportedly intended. Okay, I'm gonna ask Ben to respond to that in a moment, but, but first I wanna to turn to Nima so he can respond to both, because her, the question I wanna ask her is related to the one I asked you. So Nima, Giuliani, not Giuliani, <laughs> is legislative counsel for the American Civil Liberties uh, Union. She previously worked as chief, uh, in the chief of staff's office at the Department of Homeland Security, concentrating on national security and civil rights issues. Uh, so another person who straddled the worlds here. And so I, I'd like to also ask you to pick up on what you've heard so far, but in particular, uh, if Liza was addressing whether USA Freedom succeeded in her view in ending bulk collection. Can you talk a little bit about whether it succeeded in some of the other goals associated with that legislation? Sure. So when the USA Freedom Act passed in 2015, a big goal was to address the bulk collection problem. But it wasn't the only goal. Um, a significant goal was also to address the systematic breakdown in transparency and oversight that had allowed this program to continue to begin with. So I think when the Snowden revelations revealed that the NSA had been collecting phone records of every American, um, and that not only had they been doing this, but that the FISA court had signed off on it for nearly a decade. Um, a lot of people were very shocked and saw that as an indication that the FISA court wasn't necessarily fulfilling its role in providing effective oversight. Um, and then even going beyond that, um, many members of Congress, when you know the the stories came out about this program expressed outrage that they had not known about the program. And they hadn't known about the program even in years where they were asked to vote on whether to reauthorize Section 215. Um, and certainly from a public perspective, um, the public never had a robust debate on the phone record program and the extent to which it would affect people's privacy and civil liberties, and whether there were alternatives. And we were all essentially kept in the dark um, and probably likely would never have known about the program absent the Snowden disclosures. 
And so a goal of the USA Freedom Act was to really address this breakdown. To one, you know, put in place um, better mechanisms to make sure that there was more robust review within the FISA courts. And two, to require sufficient transparency so if there was another bulk collection program, the public would know about it, members of Congress would know about it, we could have a debate and we could do something. And so, you know, from my perspective, you know, many of the reforms in the 2015 bill were improvements, but we're not all the way there. Um, so to focus on sort of two in particular. Um, one is a big change um, from the USA Freedom Act was creating um, what they refer to as an, an amicus. Um, and the idea was that the FISA court, at its discretion, um, could appoint this amicus to participate in novel and significant um, cases that came before the court. And this amicus could provide a perspective, and in some cases, potentially a perspective involving greater protection of privacy and civil liberties. And based on what we know from some of the disclosures since 2015, there have been cases where the amicus has been appointed, and there have been cases where they have argued um, for greater privacy and civil liberties protection, um, and many cases where those arguments have been rejected, right, where the court has said, Thank you, we hear these arguments, um, but, but we're not necessarily going to adopt them. There have been other um, situations where um, perhaps those arguments have, have helped shape um, and potentially improve the decisions coming out of the court. And so is this better than where we were pre-2015? Sure. Is it where we should be? Absolutely not. Um, I think that one of the concerns that um, has come out with some of the opinions was case, in cases where um, the amicus's um, arguments have been rejected, they don't have a mechanism to force a review, right? They can't say, okay, well, the, the lower court has rejected my view. I would like this appeal to the Fisker Court of Review. And I think that that's something where, you know, it had appeared that was a proposal allowing the amicus to do that that had appeared in prior versions of the USA Freedom Act, but as part of the political process was dropped. I think because of that, um, we have an amicus that is less effective than it could be. Um, I think also the fact that appointment of the amicus is discretionary and only in novel and significant cases also limits the, um, the ability to impact a broad range of cases where you might not have even have an amicus to participate and provide that point of view. Um, so I think that was one key re um, reform. The second um, reform really has to go to transparency. Um, the USA Freedom Act had a lot of provisions that dealt with transparency. Um, one of the most um, significant was requiring disclosure of novel and significant FISA court opinions. And the idea was that if the FISA court was going to take sort of a, um, a, a view of the law that was not consistent with what lawmakers had intended or what the public thought, we all should know about that, right? So when we think back to um, the bulk collection program, you know, part of what allowed that program to continue was really um, this interpretation of what relevance meant that none of us thought was consistent with what Congress intended. The government argued that relevant meant everybody's phone records, right? And that was really inconsistent with what relevance had, um, how it had been interpreted in the past and what members of Congress thought when they passed the law to begin with. Um, so we've seen um, some disclosures as a result of this provision, but we actually don't know how these laws had been interpreted prior to 2015. Right, so prior to 2015, what was the government's interpretation of what records they could collect with a Section 215 order? What was their interpretation of, um, you know, in what cases maybe would they have to take um, additional, um, additional protections when it came to minimization? Um, the government interpreted this disclosure provision to only be prospective, and because of that, we don't have um, an insight into prior interpretations of the law and to what extent prior interpretations of law could continue to be creating um, surveillance practices that raise concerns. And so um, I think- Can I just jump in for, you know, it is the case that the government declassified gigantic stacks of FISA opinions from before Snowden after, in the fallout of that. So can you just explain a little bit more what you mean when, we, when you say we don't know how they, you know, what the FISA court rulings were from that period? Sure, we don't have um, all, all declassification of novel and significant FISA court opinions. We have some, um, you know, declassifications that were made post-Snowden in response to public pressure or in response to FOIA requests or litigation. But what we don't have is a full picture of how these authorities have been interpreted by the government and what they believe the scope of these authorities are. And I think that that goes to some of the, the questions that um, emerge when we think of how different Section 215 is from the way FISA operated prior to the USA Patriot Act. And so I think what we do need to 
understand is what is the full scope of how Section 215's legal authority has been interpreted by the government and what that means going forward, particularly as technology continues to evolve and surveillance practices continue to evolve. I think questions are going to come up, questions such as, you know, can you collect location information with a Section 215 order? Can you collect other types of sensitive information? I think understanding the legal interpretation of Section 215 is critical for the public to understand what the scope of the authority is. All right. I'm going to try to speed things up a little bit because we've got 20 minutes left and we want to go through the second round. But Ben, was there anything from the critiques of uh, USA Freedom Act, both in the call records world and beyond, or, uh, that you wanted to respond to? Um, oh, there, there was a lot. Um, but, but just to, to try to narrow it a bit, um, I, I do think with respect to the amicus, it, unquestionably that was an improvement in the process. Um, for the significant or novel issues. I think one of the reasons why the amicus was structured as an, uh, as an amicus um, were because of Article Three constitutional um, concerns. Um, that if you structured someone su such that they had the ability to appeal or th they were a required element, um, that we would run into some standing problems um, with respect to Article Three. And so that, that was a driving concern, I know, for, for some members of Congress in terms of where, where that ended up. And to the degree that those things are changed, that there probably will, in, in the end, be some litigation. There really was an effort with the USA Freedom Act to figure out how do we, how do we thread that needle um, to, to have the amicus there in the significant um, cases where they're going to be most useful. I think that's the other aspect. Um, while we are very much focused in this panel and, and overall in some of these big cases, these questions of how you uh, interpret a sp specific selection term in 215 and 702, all of which we've had amicus involvement in. Um, your everyday FISA case is generally, has very few matters of law involved, right? It is just a, an application of facts in the way that any sort of warrant would be. Um, so it probably wouldn't make sense to have one in every instance. Um, with respect to uh, opinions, um, we, are, um, we are down to a handful uh, of ones that haven't been released um, since 2003 when, they, when we really started tracking the significant opinions. Um, Eliza has done some really great work on this and, uh, with her, her secret law report. Um, but through you know, a mix of proactive disclosures, um, responses to FOIA cases, the vast majority of these opinions have been released at this point. Um, and we are still working through some others as well. And we released, uh, as we'll talk about in a second, three pretty recently um, with respect to the 702 program. Um, I'll stop there just so we can Okay, thank yeah. you. All right, so we're going to move now to 702, the program that's still operating and, in fact, keeps growing and seems more entrenched than ever. I think according to the most recent uh, transparency report, we're up to about 165,000 uh, foreigners abroad whose selection terms are being targeted for collection of things like their emails and text messages from services like Gmail and Facebook and so forth. Uh, just uh, so that uh, the number of people being targeted through this warrantless surveillance program keeps growing, and uh, and it doesn't seem to show any signs that that's ever going to be turned off in the way that the phone records program uh, is is uh, is dying, and uh, maybe in a faster way than you had originally been planning. Ben, could you sketch the sort of three most important parts to understand about? programmatic oversight of the 702 program that people should understand? Sure. So, um, so programmatically, um, and unlike 215, for 702, what the court approves are not individual targets. Um, the court is approving uh, three things at this point, um, some other things as well, but three sets of procedures. A set of targeting procedures. What are the rules by which the NSA is going to be able to start collection on a particular target? What do they have to show? Because they may only target someone who is a non-US person, reasonably believed to be outside of the United States, for a specified foreign intelligence purpose that the Attorney General and DNI identify. Um, in addition to that, there are what are referred to as minimization procedures, which control the access, uh, the use, the dissemination, how long you can retain all of that underlying information. And um, newly, um, there are now special procedures called querying procedures that go to a particular issue of when can the government um, look into that collection using the identifier, particularly the identifier of a U.S. person, um, and to search the records um, and, and find what is there about a U.S. person. Um, so th that is when we're talking about sort of programmatic, that is really what we're talking about. 
With respect to the oversight, um, the oversight very much starts within the agencies themselves. And so you have um, rather robust programs in each one of the agencies that are looking at uh, individual decisions with respect to retention or dissemination, but certainly with respect to targeting. I know there was uh, Mr. Snowden at one point said that, that he could have walked in and, and targeted a federal judge. Um, that was not true. It was never true. Um, it has never been the case that you could, that any one analyst could go in and put someone up on collection under 702. Not only did the program not allow it um, from a procedure standpoint, but the technology didn't allow it either. Um, so that starts internally. There's also a very substantial um, kind of within the executive but outside of the agency oversight program as well. And so that is a joint program between the Department of Justice and my office, uh, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Um, they look at every single one of those targeting decisions um, that are made. Um, they look at the disseminations um, that are made when they involve U.S. persons information, right? So if you're going to share information outside of your agency to another agency, um, that's called a dissemination, and that, if it involves a U.S. person, um, is reviewed. They look at some retention decisions, um, and importantly, as we'll probably, I'm sure, get into, they look at the queries, you know, those instances where they're looking for a particular U.S. person's information. That... I would say operates a little bit differently between the agencies. At NSA and CIA, that program looks at every single one of the queries. Um, that's not possible at the FBI, and so instead what happens is the Department of Justice goes out to about 26 field offices a year and reviews the queries of um, uh, agents and analysts in the field to see how they're using the program in that manner. Okay, I'm going to uh, ask Liza in a moment to talk a little bit more about what we recently learned about the, EF, the FBI's problems with its querying procedures. But before I do, that was a description of internal executive branch oversight. There's rules, there's people reviewing who got targeted and what reports are being put out. Let's talk about external oversight with Carrie. Can you talk a little bit about, but briefly, please, uh, congressional oversight. The two intelligence committees are also supposed to be looking over the agency's shoulder on this. Uh, but they also have their own problems, and particularly HIPSI right now is not a happy, normal place. Mm -hmm. What does that mean for the world of surveillance oversight? So um, as, as Ben described, there was a robust uh, internal uh, Department of Justice, DNI. So when the uh, provision was in initially enacted, one of the important things that the government was able to say as far as oversight was this surveillance authority has oversight conducted by all three branches of government. Uh, ben described the internal executive branch oversight. The second piece was the role of the FISA court, uh, which doesn't review the individual targets, but has a substantial annual review in terms of reviewing all of the procedures under which this collection is uh, authorized and used. Including and those compliance are incidents. Very detailed procedures and monitoring of compliance incidents. So that was the second branch um, that was involved in oversight. The third branch is important too. And the third branch is supposed to be the congressional intelligence oversight um, that conducts the, 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 the next level of oversight. And that includes getting reports from the executive branch, getting reports from the agencies, getting briefed by the agencies, um, being reported to when it comes to significant compliance issues that are arising. And that's the job of the two intelligence committees, one in the Senate, one in the House, that are supposed to be doing this work. One of the issues that I think is of current concern is whether or not that intelligence oversight process is still functioning as it should be. And these committees were, uh, again, go back to the late 70s. Their oversight is supposed to be independent oversight by the third branch of government, which provides an important check on the executive branch's activities. On the Senate side, which has continued to operate um, in the current <laughs> political environment on a continued bipartisan basis, they've done a substantial investigation pertaining to recent events, uh, the Mueller wrote the same issues that were the subject of 2016 election interference. But there has been a, um, at least my perception in observing the committee from the outside, has been that they have also been able to continue to do their substantive intelligence oversight work. The HIPSI, because it has become so intensely partisan and so intensely politicized, there are always, of course, it's Congress, there's a political nature of it, but the intelligence committees were always a little bit more insulated from the hyper-partisanship of some other 
committees and other work that was going on. What I'm concerned about um, from an intelligence oversight perspective is because of the hyperpartisanship that is uh, taking place currently, including, frankly, the, the, the role that the HIPSI found itself in in being a, a central place for the impeachment investigation to take place, is the question that I have is, what has that done to the substantive intelligence oversight that is supposed to be taking place? We don't know really the answer to that question, whether um, there's one part of the committee that is able to continue to um, do the work that we're seeing in public and another part of the committee that's able to do the intelligence oversight. But effective intelligence oversight really does need to be bipartisan because when the committee chairmen have questions, when members have questions, when they pose those to the intelligence community, the intelligence community needs to know that Congress is unified in wanting to conduct substantive oversight. Doesn't mean everybody's going to agree about the policy prescription or the legislative result, but the fact of doing oversight needs is, is more effective when it's done in a bipartisan way. Okay. So that is a, a raising alarms that part of the institutional oversight structures may be breaking down outside. Certainly stressed under yeah. a high degree of stress. It's been described in sort of a, I would say, aspirational or glowing way that the internal structures are, are robust. Uh, but he also referenced the fact that there was some recent uh, declassified FISA court opinions that talked about some problems with the FBI's implementation of those new rules that, uh, for querying the repository of warrantless surveillance for Americans' information. Uh, and Liza, could you walk briefly, walk the audience through what did we learn and what does that show about uh, whether the system is working in practice? Okay, so I do have to do a short background, but recall that 702 allows the government to obtain the communications of foreigners overseas, including their communications with Americans, without getting a warrant. Um, and in order to do that, the government has to certify that the target... The, the, the person they're interested in is the foreigner and not the American. And they also have to minimize the use, retention, and sharing of the American's data because it is only incidentally collected. Um, minimization requirements uh, have been uh, interpreted remarkably, to allow the NSA to share raw 702 data with the FBI and to allow the FBI to comb through all this data, looking specifically for Americans' communications to use in uh, purely domestic criminal investigations. Um, for, for the most part, um, and these are the US person queries, um, in the majority of cases, the only substantive limitation on these queries is that the uh, query has to be reasonably likely to return foreign intelligence information or evidence of a crime. And that requirement is contained in internal FBI procedures. There's also uh, now a procedural requirement that Congress imposed in 2018 that the FBI keep a record of each US person query. What we learned from these opinions was that the FBI had been violating both the substantive and the procedural requirements. So procedurally, the FBI was keeping a record of all of its queries, but it was not indicating which were US person queries uh, because it argued it was just too difficult, too burdensome to figure that out. Um, fortunately, the FISA court did not buy that argument and neither did the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review on appeal. Substantively, uh, the FISA court found that the FBI's procedures in practice, not on paper, but in practice, violated the Fourth Amendment because the FBI was conducting large numbers of U.S. person queries that were not reasonably likely to return foreign intelligence information or evidence of a crime. Uh, this included multiple one-off incidents of agents running U.S. person queries accidentally or for improper personal reasons, for example, against relatives. Not quite sure why the system is configured not to allow searches for judges, but you can search for your relatives. Um, and also more systemic problems, including a phenomenon called batch queries, which is where the government was running up to 70,000 queries at once of US persons, uh, based on this idea that even though uh, you know, most of these search terms were not going to return foreign intelligence evidence uh, information or evidence of a crime, that uh, in aggregate, um, they were likely to return a hit. And if this sounds familiar, it should. It's basically the same rationale that the NSA used to try to justify bulk collection of Americans' phone records. These opinions really have to be viewed in a historical context, which is a longstanding failure 
of the government to comply with the rules governing 702 collection. Uh, in 2011, the FISA court learned that the NSA had been handling data um, in a way that violated the Fourth Amendment. So the court imposed uh, certain rules for handling the data. Five years later, the FISA court found that uh, the NSA had been regularly violating those rules. Uh, now, these opinions tell us that in the year following that, the FBI had procedures violating the Fourth Amendment. So for 10 years, the 702 program has been operating in violation of the Fourth Amendment. Um, now, you know, the, often when people say, well, has there been abuse of the program? And, and you know, the government's position is, is always that if these violations were unintentional, although we now know that some of them were, but if these violations were unintentional, uh, then that's not abuse. If you ask me, a 10-year pattern of constitutional violations rises to a level of negligence that constitutes abuse. But the more important question, after having asked this question of abuse so many times, it has occurred to me that by far the more important question than whether there's been abuse is whether the privacy of Americans is being adequately protected. And the answer to that question is clearly no. Um, and so, which is one of the reasons why I support a requirement for the government to obtain a warrant before running these US person queries. I'd like to jump in really briefly because yeah. you raised a factual issue with Ben. I think, and stop me if I'm wrong, that there was an apples and orange issue here where your critique of Snowden saying he could walk in and, and look at a judge's communications was no, he couldn't because it takes more than one person to target someone, which would mean to put in their email address or phone number to start collecting against that in the first instance. Your critique of people searching for their relatives was querying the database of stuff that was already collected, and you can do that as a sole individual, and that's how these two statements are consistent. Do you think that's right? That's accurate, Charlie. That's not actually how I understood Snowden's statement from back then, but nope. okay. All right, Mima, I was gonna ask you to jump into the issue of notice of, FB, of FISA information in uh, criminal cases. But with only four and a half minutes left, I wonder, rather than trying to take on a wholly new complicated topic, is there anything you would like to build on from what Liza just said, leaving time for Ben to, to rebut or at least respond? I mean, the only thing I'll note is that for years the FBI said they couldn't report the number of these US person queries. And now we know that they will be able to report it. Um, and so I think that that raises questions as to whether um, the agencies are gonna publicly release that number so that we can honestly have this debate about really how often are they doing this. From my perspective, they should, and they should do it as part of this reauthorization debate. Mm -hmm. Well, all right, Ben, as putting on your government uh, hat, what do, you, what do you say to these critiques? Um, so, uh, so, so a couple things. The, uh, with respect to the FBI query issue, I think Liza accurately defines it into sort of two separate issues, which were how FBI's tracking queries, the procedural aspect of that, um, and then the substantive standard. The substantive standard is that a query has to be reasonably likely to return foreign intelligence information. There were a small number, it's actually only one, um, with respect to an intentional, someone trying to query their family or relatives. Um, there's a couple instances where someone mistakenly queried themselves. Um, and FBI colleagues too. And and well, no, so, yeah. So that that was what the a, court said. What the court said actually. So it, that's going to the second issue. The second issue goes to instances where whether a query was reasonably likely to return foreign intelligence information. Mm -hmm. And the FBI colleagues that Liza is referencing was an instance where there was was a, a query, a batch query conducted. Um, the results weren't reviewed, but the query itself was conducted um, of people who have FBI colleagues, people who have access to FBI's buildings or facilities. Um, ironically, this gigantic privacy violation by someone at the FBI was against everyone at the FBI. It, it was with, with respect to FBI um, folks. It was large insofar as it was um, tens of thousands of, of selectors, telephones or email address. Mm -hmm. as the ultimate privacy impact might have been more limited given the fact that those results were never reviewed. So no human actually, the query was conducted, no human actually looked at the query. Right. Very, so, something still unexplained about that because we also know that the FBI's general counsel objected and it happened anyway. So something, something's odd. It's still, still significant concern. I mean, this is a compliance incident. Let's not, let's not try to walk around that. Like, this is a compliance incident that was identified through the compliance program that we had um, and continue to have. And so to remedy that, um, after litigation court, what the FBI is now implementing, building systems to do that it did not ha have before are, are twofold. One is to require any time there is a, a query of a U.S. person identifier to have a sort of contemporaneous written justification um, for review, including by 
for example, my office, um, in terms of doing that auditing. But that also requires them to make some sort of determination contemporaneously of whether it's a US person or not. And what they were doing before um, was they, they bluntly weren't answering that question. They were applying that Corey standard more broadly and saying all of my queries have to be reasonably likely to return foreign intelligence information regardless of whether it's a US person or a non-US person. I'm not going to use re resources to try to figure out the citizenship of the person I'm running the query against. I'm just going to run the query when it's appropriate to run the query. Can I just make one sort of overarching point as, sure. we're, as we're starting to wrap, wrap up? Which is that um, the back and forth that, that, um, that Ben is explaining between the court has to, and, and the FBI has to do with the court responding to each individual instance of when an agency is doing this particular thing wrong or that particular thing wrong. And so we have this, now we have this system where they're, the government and the court are working out very, very um, minute details of how procedures actually work. And the bigger picture issue that isn't being resolved through this process is I think what Liza is getting at, which is at what point is a history and a continuation of a variety of different types of compliance problems make it look as if the system just simply can't function properly. And I'm not quite sure how that bigger picture issue is going to be resolved because the court and the agencies are actually not gonna work that piece out. It requires higher level policy engagement and legislative engagement. That's a fantastic takeaway thought and it actually resonates of course with the first part of this conversation which was the decision to shut down one of these programs after just an unending series of compliance headaches. Uh, but this other one doesn't look like it's going to get shut down, and so the fracas will continue for next year's surveillance conference when Julian puts it on. But now I'd like to say thank you all very much for listening to us. Thank you for the panel, uh, for your great thoughts and, and the back and forth, uh, which was quite interesting. And um, I think we're, we're out of time, so we're done. Thank you. Thank you.